Good morning, church. Welcome. We're so glad that you're joining us today. My name's Megan, and we've got some great things coming up at ABC that we want to make you aware of. First of all, this coming Saturday, if you are a guy and you like breakfast, you won't want to miss the men's breakfast. So that's Saturday, March 12th at 7 a.m. We have Jeremy Stallnecker of Mighty Oaks coming to share on living a purposeful life. So come on out. Breakfast is $5, and we hope to see you there. Hey, middle school students, we've got an event for you coming up here next month at the beginning of spring break, April 8th through 11th, called Slow Serve. This is formerly Project 805, and this is a great event, a great time for you guys to get together. You'll camp in Creston during the night, and you'll do service projects during the day. It's a really great time to just serve our community. And if you're interested in signing up for that event, head over to the youth webpage. The Student Ministries team is also looking for volunteers for this event, so if you're interested in helping out, they would really love your help, um, as well as any donations. So they're looking to borrow some tools like weed whackers and lawnmowers and shovels, anything of that nature. So if you have those things that you'd be willing to let them borrow, please contact the Student Ministries team and they would be so grateful. Hey students, it's hard to believe it, but it's already time again for Hume Lake signups. So head over to the website if you are a middle school or a high school student. Our registration link is open and available for you to sign up. And so we'd love to have you join us for camp this summer. And finally, church, one last reminder is that next weekend is daylight savings. So don't forget to spring forward. Hey, we're so glad that you joined us today. Have a fantastic week. God bless. Hi, ABC family, and welcome. We're so glad that you're tuned in with us today. Um, I just have a question as we start this new day. How are you doing today? Can we acknowledge that the Christian life is one that's a bit of a roller coaster ride? Some days we're up and we're feeling like we're on the top of the world. We have those mountaintop experiences where it's like our ears are tuned to God's voice and His Word is alive to us and we feel connected with Him and it, we look around at our circumstances and it feels like we're basking in the glow of His glory as the, the richness of His favor rests upon us. And then almost as though somebody flips a switch, we can find ourselves in a place where it feels the exact opposite of that, where it can feel cold and distant uh, our ears almost feel deaf to his voice. His word reads to us almost like any other book would read. It no longer has that sense of feeling inspired to us. Uh, we look around at our circumstances and it's nothing but a hot mess and we find ourselves asking, Lord, where are you in the midst of this mess? Are you even here? The Christian life can be like a roller coaster. At least that's my experience. Am I the only one that feels that way? I'm guessing that I'm not. I'm guessing that you know what it's like and that some of you as you tune in and watch this are on that mountaintop experience. And some of you may be finding yourself at the low point in the roller coaster ride of the Christian life. Wherever you are, high, low, or somewhere in between. Maybe you're on the way down, on the way up, wherever you are, as we continue preaching our way through the book of Matthew, we find that God has some wisdom for us to glean from today. Last week, we observed the baptism of Jesus, and we saw this amazing mountaintop experience in Jesus' life where the heavens were rent and the voice of God boomed down saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
And in today's passage, we see the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So wherever you are on the roller coaster of the Christian life, lean in and listen. Uh, we're going to open our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 4. And as you turn there with me, let's pause and let's pray and ask the Lord to tune our ears to his voice this morning. Father, we look to you. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. We thank you that you have given us everything necessary for life and godliness. And we trust that today's passage is part of what you want to use to keep us encouraged and to give us wisdom to know how to make our way through life on this earth as we're longing for your return. So open our eyes that we might see you correctly. Open our ears that we might hear your voice. Use your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So reading from Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, we find here the temptation of Jesus. Matthew continues and he writes, he says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Thus ends today's reading of this assigned passage for us to, to work our way through. So what do we need to learn from this passage today? Let's look again at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The first thing that we need to learn from this passage today is that sometimes the Spirit leads us into the wilderness. Do we have room in our theology for this? I admit, when I think of the leading of the Spirit in my life, I'm, I tend to think of it in light of Psalm 23. It's a familiar passage. You probably can quote it by memory. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters, and he makes me to lie down in green pastures, right? So I think of the leading of the Spirit in light of this green pastures where I'm satisfied. I have everything I need, these still cool waters. It's refreshing, right? And praise the Lord that much of my Christian life has been that. But I got to admit to you that that's not always what I get as I follow the leading of the Spirit. What we want and what we get are sometimes different things, and that according to the leading of the Spirit. And today, this passage, it forces us to recognize that sometimes the Spirit leads us into uncomfortable and scary places. Sometimes the Spirit leads us into the wilderness. And the text is very clear, and, and it says that there's a, a, a purpose for the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness. And that purpose is to be 
tempted. This word that's translated as tempted can also be translated as test. And Matthew will use this word and translate it in a couple of different ways in his gospel. But here's what the ESV, ESV translators have done with this word. Anytime Satan or the devil is the agent of the test, the one who's administrating the test, the word tempt is used in the English language. And anytime another human being is the agent of the test, like the scribes or the Pharisees are going to test Jesus, the ESV translators use the word test. These words are, English words are interchangeable and faithful interpretations of the Greek word that is used here. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that every temptation is a test. And this is by God's design. And this particular test is one that happens in the wilderness. And in bringing this up, in, in highlighting that the Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness, Matthew continues his parallel of Jesus to his audience. Matthew, remember, is a Jew writing primarily to an audience made up of Jewish people. And as he does, he is holding Jesus up through the fulfillment of prophecy. He's assuring them that he is the king that they've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And he's showing them that he is also the new Moses, that authoritative teacher. We saw that in chapter 2. And he's the new Israel. He is the one who, in the ways that Israel was not obedient to God, Jesus is going to be that obedient son of God. You see, God is now leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days. The, the text is clear that he is fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And just like that, God had led Israel around in the wilderness for a period of 40 years. Moses speaks of this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God led Israel through the wilderness, if you remember, on their way to crossing over the Jordan, conquering Jericho, entering the promised land. And in the wilderness, those 40 years, they were tested. Israel failed that test, by the way. You can read about that in the Old Testament. And here, Jesus in the wilderness, unlike Israel, Jesus is going to pass this test with flying colors. Jesus is God's obedient son, He's the one who Israel and who you and I never could be. So, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted. Notice that while the Spirit is the one leading Jesus into the wilderness, he is not the one who is doing the tempting. This tempting, according to verse 1, is to be done by the devil. Now, this is the first mention of God's enemy in the book of Matthew. But it's not the first time that we've seen his fingerprints in the story of Jesus. If you look back at the genealogy in chapter 1, that, that genealogy that's complete with sexual promiscuity and dysfunction, I think we see the fingerprints of the enemy in there. And as we look at chapter 2, we remember Herod and his paranoia. He, he didn't like the idea of this one being called the king of the Jews, this Jesus, 
being born in his jurisdiction, he saw him as a threat, and in his paranoia, he put a hit out on him and killed all of the boys ages two years and under in that area. We see the fingerprints of God's enemy in that as well. But in today's passage, we see him named. We see him called the devil. We see him referred to as the tempter. And we see Jesus call him Satan down in verse 10 as this story continues to unfold. But, now this might seem a little bit outside your comfort zone. You may or may not be familiar with the idea of being tempted directly by the devil. But before we distance ourselves from this idea, because it just seems a little bit out there, let us look again at what the Bible has to say about the threefold opposition that we all face as we walk this earth. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, says this, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So according to this passage, there's a threefold hot mess, if you will, of opposition against all that God is and all that God does. It's the world, which is an influence. It's a culture of seeking to find life apart from God. So the world is, is part of that. We have the flesh, the unique desires that are characteristic of these physical bodies in which we live. And we have the devil. Uh, the spirit of the age is the way Paul talked about it. He, he is a real person who opposes all that God is and all that God does. So these three, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are almost always at play together, tempting or testing us to see if we're going to obey God or not. So here we are. The spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness, but the spirit is not the one doing the tempting. And, let me ask you this, if the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness, is it not also possible that he might lead you and me into the wilderness? Let me ask you this, what is your wilderness? What uncomfortable place has the Spirit led you into in order for you to be tested? That he might know what is in your heart, that he might know whether or not you will obey his commandments in Scripture. Maybe it's the wilderness of financial stress. Or maybe it's the wilderness of relational discord. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's singleness or you're wrestling with sexual identity. Maybe it's something else. You know what it is. This passage helps you understand why you may be there. Sometimes the Spirit leads us into the wilderness. And there's a very good chance that the Lord has led you into this wilderness to humble you and to test you and to see what's in your heart. If you're like me, you want green pastures as you think about the Spirit of God leading you. You want those cool, still waters. But sometimes we get the wilderness. Here's a word of encouragement. There's nothing inherently evil about the wilderness. The possibility of sinning, of walking in evil, 
exists equally in the wilderness as it does in green pastures. We are ripe for temptation in either place. We're just as vulnerable to it. But a valid question is, well, how does this square with the goodness of God? Like, what do we do with a God who sometimes leads his people into the wilderness? After all, he is the one who led Job and asked in a conversation with the devil himself, said, have you considered my servant Job? Maybe you haven't read that lately, but let's remind ourselves. Uh, the book of Job is right before the book of Psalms, so that's where we can find that. And it's a, it's a, it's a story about a man named Job. It's a long book, and Job endures a test. This is who Job is. Job 1.1, 1, 1. there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He's perfect. He, he, there's four things about Job that are true. He's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. So that's the, that's the way this book starts. And it tells us that there's nothing that this guy has done wrong that makes him deserving of what's about to happen. Verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him in the earth. He's blameless and he's upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. So God refers to Job in the same way that the narrator of this book referred to him. All four things about his righteousness are true. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Job fears you because of all the good stuff. That's a paraphrase. He, he fears you because of all the good things you provide for him. He says, but you take those good things away and he will curse you. And God says, no, I don't think so. In fact, go ahead and touch all that he has, but don't touch him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Folks, these are hard truths. What do we do with a God? The good news is God is, is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over Satan. Satan is only on a leash the length that God allows him to have. But here in the instance of Job, sometimes God lengthens that leash and gives the enemy a right to mess around in his righteous person's life. It seems like a parallel to what God is doing here with Jesus. And I just want to acknowledge that these are hard truths for us. And our finite minds have a hard time wrapping around the goodness of God, which God assures us he is in his word, and yet him seemingly giving the enemy a little influence over the details of our lives from time to time. Sometimes the Spirit leads us into the wilderness. So if it's true that God in his goodness and in his sovereignty has led you and me into these circumstances that we all experience as we ride the roller coaster of the Christian life. If he does that to test us, what do I need to know in order to pass this test? And this, this passage helps us understand these things. Let's remember, every temptation is a test.
And these tests are aimed at our identity. Look again at verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now the devil could have said, I know you're hungry, so command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he didn't. He said, if you are the Son of God. And in so doing, he calls into question that truth that God the Father from heaven declared over Jesus in last week's passage. Behold, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And in a mocking voice, Satan now confronts Jesus in the wilderness and says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Prove it. And so it is with us. We hear similar thoughts in our own minds. Thoughts that creep in doubts like, am I really God's child? Does God really have my best interest in mind? Can I really trust God with this area of my heart, with this area of my life in this wilderness? Is God good? Is he for me? Do I really belong to him? Whose am I? And you see, if you're like me, our problem is, is that we are so prone to find our worth in what we do or what we have done rather than in whose we are. Is it not true that some of your biggest temptations have been about your identity? We can reduce our identity down to believe that we are the bad things that we have done. Thoughts creep into our mind that, that tell us that I just mess everybody's life up. I'm, I'm a screw-up. I'm no good. There's no way that God or anybody else could ever love me. And that becomes our identity because it's right here in our vision. Sometimes it's, I am the illness that I'm suffering with right now. You know, name your illness. That can be, take on an identity for us. Or maybe it's, I am the good things that I do. I'm an athlete or I'm a scholar, or I'm a parent, I'm a professional. Pick it, name, name your own thing, fill in that blank. Ultimately, we are prone to find our identity in what we do rather than who we are. But our identity must be grounded in Christ so that we can realize that we are good enough in God's eyes because of the goodness and the perfection of Jesus not because of the things that you and I do or fail to do. You see, the devil called Jesus' identity into question. If you are the Son of God, and we can bet that he's going to call our identity into question when we are tested as well. So temptations are aimed first at our identity. Secondly, temptations are aimed at our appetites or our physical desires. Listen again at verses 2 and 3. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. This is a legitimate desire for food. 40 days and 40 nights. I can't imagine fasting for that long. But the text assures us that Jesus did. And he was legitimately hungry. His body needed fuel. And the tempter comes in at that moment leverages that physical weakness and says, hey, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. You know you can. And Jesus was able. That's the amazing thing. 
Jesus could have spoken or even thought, and those stones would have become bread. But this would have been for him to use his divinity in a way that he had voluntarily restricted. Philippians 2 reminds us that Jesus emptied himself. And I understand that to be that he voluntarily, voluntarily restricted the use of his divinity as he walked this earth as a man who is fully man and fully God. These desires are not sinful. His hunger was not a sinful desire. To experience that is not sin. But how and when we choose to fulfill those desires can become sin. So don't be surprised, folks, when the test that you face is focused on one or more of your physical appetites. One therapist talks in this way about these things. They say, human beings have a variety of powerful appetites. We hunger for food, love, fun, meaning, physical affection, bodily safety and material security. Adults hunger for sex. Children hunger for play. Both hunger for a sense of competence in navigating their environments. The list goes on. Note that none of these appetites are sinful in and of themselves. But any of these appetites can become sinful depending on how and when we choose to satisfy them. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that this is true. Listen to how Spurgeon talks about this. The fact that the, that the enemy, the, the Satan, the devil, will always uniquely target our appetites, our individual appetites. He says, Satan never brushes the feathers of his birds the wrong way. He generally deals with us according to our tastes and likings. He flavors the bait to his fish. So you can, you can bet that temptations are going to be focused at your identity. You can bet these temptations are going to be focused at your appetites and that the specific temptation that is targeted at you is going to be flavored in such a way as to leverage the weakness of your appetite. So, thirdly, temptations are tests that are aimed at our understanding of Scripture. Jesus passed the first test with flying colors, right? When he was commanded to turn these stones into bread, he refused, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He knew that verse. He believed it to be true, and he lived it out. When he was physically hungry, he recognized, I don't live by bread alone. I live by the word of God. And he passed that test by quoting and obeying scripture. Do you see how the devil writes his next test in a way that pretends that he also values God's word? Listen at verses five and six. Then the devil took him out to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You see that? It's like the enemy says, oh, you're going to fight my temptation by using God's word? I'm going to do that too. I know God's word, so here's what it says. What are you going to do now? But the thing is, is that Satan, as he quotes scripture, he twists it. He conveniently omits a key phrase in Psalm 91 that he just quoted. 
And in so doing, he twists the meaning of that to make it say something that God has never said. The part that he omitted was to guard you in all your ways. So Psalm 91 in its entirety in these verses would say, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. Now, the author of Hebrews helps us understand that there has been a race that's marked out for each one of us to run, right? That is the way that we are to go. And this scripture is telling us that God has dispatched his angels to guard us as we're running that course that he's marked out for us. But if we veer off course, that guarantee is no longer there. Listen to how John Calvin talks about this. He says, Satan is not wrong in proving from this passage that angels have been given to Christ to wait on him, to guard him, and to bear him on their hands. But the fallacy lies in this, that he assigns a wandering and uncertain course to that guardianship of angels, which is only promised to the children of God when they keep themselves in their bounds and walk in their ways. If there's any force in that expression, in all thy ways, from Psalm 91:11, the prophet's meaning is wickedly corrupted and mutilated by Satan when he applies it in a violent and wild and confused manner to extravagant and mistaken courses. So this promise that, that Satan quotes from Scripture he does so imperfectly, and he makes it say something that God has never intended to say. Notice that Jesus overcomes this temptation by obeying God's word. We might even guess that Jesus was meditating on Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8 as he was fasting and praying out in the wilderness. He had been saturating his mind with scripture while he fasted and prayed. He's so quick to respond with, it is written, Remember, this is how he fights this second temptation. He says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. For him to throw himself off the temple would have been to put God to the test. Jesus shows us that knowing and obeying scripture is the key to overcoming temptation. It's the key to passing the test. And if we hope to overcome temptation ourselves, we must saturate our minds with God's word like Jesus did. Which brings us to our third point in today's message. How do we overcome? What does overcoming look like? Scripture saturation is the key to overcoming temptation because scripture saturation empowers us to live out our true identity. Look at verses four and seven. Every time Jesus battles this temptation, he fights back with, it is written, and then he quotes scripture. It is also written, and then he quotes more scripture. Scripture saturation empowers us to live out our true identity. Remember, that's the first thing that our tests are aimed at, is our identity. The tempter calls our identity into question. Often the devil will cause us to focus on what we do or what we have done, the good things or the bad things. And he'll tempt us to think that those things and the things that we do are actually what or who we are. They define who we are. And we must be demonstrating this. But those of us with faith, our identity according to God's word is that we are in Christ. 
Listen to the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church in Colossae. Chapter 2, we'll begin at verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. If we have put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus as our only hope for salvation from our sins, we are in Christ. He says this in his letter to the Galatians chapter 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And in 1 Peter he says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for God's own possession. That is our identity. That is whose we are. We are in Christ, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. The enemy may tempt us to prove our identity in some crazy ways, like he did with Jesus. But we don't have to take his bait because our identity is secure in Christ and saturating our minds with scripture will assure us of this. I'm currently involved in a 12-step group in our Celebrate Recovery program, and the reason I'm there is because I have an ongoing effort to push against my particular sin of finding my identity in what I do rather than who I am in Christ. And I lean in with the other brothers in the room and openly admit I am prone to find my identity as a mechanic or as a preacher or as a father or as a husband in anything I do rather than who I am in Christ. But here's the thing. The reason I do that is because if I leverage my life in order to please you, in some way manipulating you to love me, to see me as worthy of respect and honor because of what I do, that's when I feel fulfilled. But the truth of it is, is I am loved and I am accepted because I am in Christ. And when I'm manipulating you to love me, I'm failed. I can't serve you. But when I'm freed from this sin of making you try to love me, then I'm actually freed in Christ to serve you and to love you. And that's God's design. An ABC family, if we can live out our identity in Christ, then we are freed from all of our sinful selfishness that keeps us focused to our own selves and our own world, and we're empowered then to love one another and to serve one another. Scripture defines our true identity. We must know it. We must obey it. We must live it out. Secondly, scripture saturation empowers us to live out God's wise design for our appetites, for our physical desires. In verse 3, Satan calls us into question. He says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. It's a legitimate desire. Our bodies need fuel. Hunger is a desire to make sure that we have adequate fuel in order to do the work that God has marked out for us to do. So the tempter comes and he exploits these desires. He exploits our appetites. He uniquely flavors and targets his test 
at these. Maybe it's our hunger. Maybe it's our thirst, our sexuality, our desire for play or recreation, for material security, for competence. Our desires themselves are not evil. But how we respond to them and seek to fulfill them can be evil. James approaches this and, and speaks about it in chapter 1 of his epistle. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what is James saying here? He's saying that your desires flirt with you, and that when they flirt with you, you are not to flirt back. Don't flirt with fulfilling your desires outside of God's wise design. Flirting leads toward fornication, and fornication leads toward conception of sin, and sin brings death. So don't flirt with your desires. God's Word clarifies the parameters for faithful fulfillment of our appetites and our desires. The desires themselves are morally neutral, but how we act on them can become sinful, can lead us to death. God's Word shows us His wise design for the faithful fulfillment of our natural desires, the faithful fulfillment of our appetites. God's Word is clear about how we're to satisfy our hunger, how we're to faithfully steward our sexuality, how we're to find and look for rest or recreation. It's all in here. And we need to saturate our minds with God's Word so that we understand His wise design and live according to it. And if His wise design means that we put some of these desires on hold, it will be worth it. Because He will be with us. Thirdly, Scripture saturation empowers us to live out faithful application of Scripture. You can bank on the fact that the tempter will twist Scripture and manipulate it to try to lure you astray from God's wise plan. He did it for Jesus. He'll do it for you and he'll do it for me. You see, Satan knows God's Word probably better than you and I do. And he'll twist it to make it say things that God has never intended to say. But if we aspire to overcome temptation, we will regularly read, meditate on, and even memorize God's Word. We have a reading plan. You could pick it up at the Connect booth, or you can find it on the app or on the website. They, they put together a reading plan so that we can keep ourselves in God's Word every day, taking the fact that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's people amongst us. We have a group of men that are holding each other accountable, and they're seeking to memorize the entirety of Matthew chapter 5, hiding those truths in their heart and in their mind so that when they are put to the test, when they find themselves in temptation, they'll have those truths at the ready, and they'll be able to fight the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word. If we aspire to overcome temptation, we will be willing to trust and obey what the Bible says, taking God at his word and living according to that truth. 
Here's an encouraging truth from God's word about this idea of temptation. Listen to this. Let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. That means even when things are going good and you feel like you're impervious, like you can't be tempted, take heed because you, you're, um, you're, you're not incapable of falling. And then he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You hear that encouragement? You're not the only one facing a temptation like the one you're facing. God is faithful in the midst of that temptation. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, and he's going to give you an escape route. So in your temptation, look for this escape route as evidence of the goodness and the graciousness of God. And last, if we aspire to overcome temptation, we will pray in light of what we read in the Bible. Jesus himself endures another significant temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he goes to the cross. He invites Peter, James, and John to join him. And he says this, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So if we are to stack the deck, if you will, for passing the test of temptation, we need to keep God's word close. We need to read it. We need to meditate on it. We need to memorize it. We need to seek to trust it, to obey it, and to pray in light of it. That's how we study, if you will, in order to be able to pass the tests that will come our way. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whether you're on the high of the Christian life, on the low, or anywhere in between. Take encouragement today. Take heed this truth from this passage, this recounting of Jesus' hour of temptation in the wilderness, and find comfort. Sometimes the Spirit will lead you and me into the wilderness, and he's given us everything we need to pass the test. And including, most importantly, when we seek him in prayer, We are seeking one who has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet never once has sinned. He is our sympathetic high priest who stands by and is at the throne of grace, ready to hear and answer our prayers that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we look to you. We thank you for your wisdom, and we take you at your word that the the temptations that are uniquely ours were not the only ones to ever face them, and that you are our sympathetic high priest who, when we pray to you for help and strength and wisdom, pour that out upon us to help us in the specific ways that we need. So I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here at ABC that, Lord, we would saturate our hearts and our minds with your word and find ourselves better equipped to pass the test of temptation when it comes. Provide us with the strength and wisdom. We praise you for your wise design for your church. We love you, and we offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in, ABC family. We're so grateful that you did. We pray that you have a blessed week. Bye-bye.